If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Rob Attar, the magazine's editor. This month we're marking the 80th anniversary of the outbreak of the Second World War, which began, in Europe at least, with the German invasion of Poland. And it's that battle for Poland that we'll be discussing in today's episode. Our guest is the historian Roger Morehouse, who's just released a new book telling the story of this initial clash of the conflict, which he's also explored in an article for our October issue. I met up with Roger at the offices of his publisher, Bodley Head, in London a few days ago to find out more. There's a huge amount of interest in Britain in the Second World War, as we all know from books, TV, film. But why do you think that actually very little attention is paid to the event that started it in Europe, as in the invasion of Poland. Why is that often missed out? I think we have uh, a sort of a curious um, relationship with World War II, actually. I think, you know, it's very much a sort of defining moment, really, in Britain's sort of modern history and its sense of itself and all of those things. So in that sense, it's all very important. And we uh, we do obsess about certain chapters of the Second World War, uh, particularly those where we're most um, directly involved, in you know, Battle of Britain, D-Day, Dunkirk, all of that stuff. And rightly so. 
But still, I think that relationship with or that uh, attitude towards World War II is still curiously patchy. So there's huge areas that we don't fully understand and we don't really pay much attention to. And Poland, I think, is probably the best example of one of those uh, black spots. Poland is intimately involved in World War II and intimately involved, uh, you know, alongside British forces. Uh, Poland, of course, is the is the uh, uh, power for which Britain and France go to war in 1939, as we know. Um, but beyond that sort of bit of knowledge, Poland rather slips from the radar. So in recent years, we've had um, we've had uh, the narrative of the Battle of Britain has been kind of you know improved that we, we now include Polish pilots in that sort of role of honour and so on. Uh, and the story about um, Enigma being being broken by Polish mathematicians as well is that's become part of the narrative, right? So these things have finally penetrated that sort of British mind, but in other in other in other areas it's really very absent. And yet, you know, as I say the Poles are there in 1939. They fight this over five week, six week campaign, uh, very brutal, very bitter conflict against both the Germans and the Soviets uh, in 1939. Uh, they're then. You know, alongside the British at Narvik, alongside the British at Tobruk, they're alongside Commonwealth and old uh, colonial and Commonwealth troops at uh, Monte Cassino. It's, the list goes on. Falaise Gap. You know, they are in every theatre. So they really, we really need to make some effort to accommodate the Polish narrative into our own. And I think, I think, in addition to that um, sort of general myopia, really, on the part of the British. Um, I think there's a more specific point about the September campaign, which is that, um, in a sense, you know, this goes back to the old line of history being written by the victors. Um, and in the case of the September campaign, essentially the Germans wrote, you know, there's various sort of propaganda memoirs and picture books and so on, published like 1940 and so on, and that's that's relatively common. But beyond that, I mean, Germany goes on to bigger campaigns and bigger crimes and bigger atrocities and bigger things to worry about, so it ceases to talk about September campaign. Communist Poland post-war has no reason to tell the honest story of, of the uh, sort of capitalist democratic state that preceded it. So, it, so it doesn't talk about it unless it absolutely has to. Um, and the Western powers are also, you know, to some extent uh, obsessed with their own narratives. So the only people trying to tell the story were Polish emigres and, uh, and they didn't seem to find much traction. So essentially, September campaign really, really falls through the cracks. And that's what I, what I was trying to rectify with this book. Just for those who don't necessarily know this story too well, why does Germany decide to invade Poland in September '39? Germany is uh, expanding territorially under under Hitler in the 1930s. So, as we know, you know that sort of uh, role of dishonor of uh, the Saarland and then remilitarization of the Rhineland, uh, and then you've got the uh, the Anschluss with Austria in 1938. You've got uh, Munich, the uh, taking of the Sudetenland and the Munich Conference in 38 as well. So it's gradually expanding, and it's taking initially it's taking German inhabited territory. From its own perspective, it's writing what were perceived as the wrongs of Versailles that uh, Germany had been sort of truncated and had areas taken away from it by its neighbours. So they're writing, as they would see it, those wrongs. And to, to a large extent, the animus against Poland fits into the same pattern uh, because Poland had been reborn in 1918, is effectively a, a, a Versailles state, if you like. It's a child of Versailles. And, you know, there's former 
German-inhabited territory is taken over by the Poles in you know, the Polish corridor, most famously the area of Posen, also Upper Silesia. So there are various areas. Poland ends up with a sort of sizable German, ethnic German minority post-1918. So that's the sort of obvious reason. And then, of course, also the running sore of the city of Gdansk, of Danzig, which became a sort of uh, a foremost German complaint of the interwar years, was that this essentially 90, 95% German-inhabited city had been uh, taken away from Germany in the Versailles Treaty. It hadn't been given to Poland it, because that was too politically problem- problematical, but it had been uh, established as a free city under the League of Nations, which was a kind of, you know, the ultimate um, uh, international diplomatic fudge. But that solution had rankled with the Germans all the way through the interwar years, and so ostensibly that was the excuse for this animosity directed towards Poland was that they wanted territory back, they wanted Danzig back as a German city, uh, and that was the uh, that was the excuse that was raised in 1938. Of course, in a much longer, uh, taking a much longer view of this, you can see that uh, uh, Germany's longer-term plans for this famed idea of Lebensraum, of uh, living space for the German people, uh, this expansion beyond Germany's borders, that obviously Poland is viewed by Hitler as a state that's full of uh, people that he viewed as being racially inferior to the Germans, uh, not least a population of, uh, or a sizable population of Polish Jews. Uh, so for that reason as well, it was uh, seen as, from the perspective of Berlin, it was seen as a good idea to expand eastward in, and take over Poland. So that rather sums up the uh, the predicament that the Poles face in 1939. So it's one of the most well-known facts about the Second World War is that Britain and France went to war in defence of Poland and gave this guarantee to Poland. Why did that guarantee not deter Hitler from invading Poland, considering the risk of, you know, waging war on two sizable powers? Yeah. It's a very good point, and it's one that um, still, you know, uh, I think particularly the Poles. I was in Poland last week promoting the Polish edition of the book, and um, the press that I did there, the Poles are very agitated still about the... You know, the failure of the British guarantees and the failure of uh, those alliances made with London and Paris to actually deter Hitler. And it's a very good question. Essentially, Hitler's a gambler. He's a political gambler. And he and he had he's gambling all the way through. I mentioned that that sort of role of dishonour. You know, he's gambling when he takes over the Tsar. He's gambling when he remilitarizes, remilitarizes the Rhineland. And each time he's sort of raising the stakes and each time he's looking at his opponents and saying, they're not doing anything. They're not doing anything. They're not reacting. And then he's the, you know, the sort of high watermark of this, from the Allied perspective, of this appeasement of Hitler is, is at uh, the Munich conference in September of 38, where, where Czechoslovakia is effectively dismembered by the Western powers, by the British and the French, in a vain effort to try and salvage peace, to give those German inhabited territories uh, of Bohemia and Moravia, Sudetenland, as it's known, to give that territory to Hitler and you know, almost on condition that, you know, this is the last claim that you have. And Hitler said as much, this is my last territorial claim in Europe, he said. Then, of course, the following spring, he marches into the rest of Czechoslovakia anyway. So that's the high watermark of appeasement. And after that point, the British and the French are saying, right, okay, well, that hasn't worked. Actually trying to meet Hitler's legitimate concerns, Germany's legitimate concerns and complaints uh, in in a sort of sensible collaborative way, that hasn't worked, so what next is actually to try and confront him. So they have this policy of, of trying to contain Hitler, uh, and they issue a guarantee to Poland, which is, you know, everybody knows is going to be the next uh, item on Hitler's list. 
Uh, they issue a guarantee in March of 39, and uh, in the crisis of the uh, August of 39, there's then an Anglo-Polish military agreement is signed. And this is really the Western powers saying, right, don't, don't do it. Don't do this. This thing that you're planning to do, don't do it, because there'll be trouble. We'll go to war. But unfortunately, Hitler actually doesn't really, he certainly doesn't respect the Western powers by that point. There's a wonderful quote from in 1939 where he talks about the British and the French, and he says to one of his aides, he says, I've, I've seen them. He talks about the Western politicians. I saw them at Munich, he said. They are worms. That was his phrase. They are worms. And I think that sums up his attitude. He, he viewed them as being corrupt, as being uh, uh, on the wrong side of history, washed up, old imperialists, people that now couldn't actually sort of stand up to uh, German might even if they wanted to. So he's prepared to basically call their bluff. Uh, and despite those guarantees and despite those military uh, agreements, he marches into, into uh, Poland on the 1st of September at dawn. And he's expecting Britain and France to do nothing, to back down and to abandon Poland and say, fair enough, you know, this isn't our fight, and to walk away so that he can then have, a, have his limited war. He can dismember Poland to his, uh, to his heart's content. Interestingly, and we, we should remember in collaboration with his uh, his new confederate Stalin after the uh, Nazi-Soviet pact of the 23rd of August. Stalin also invades Poland on the, on the 17th of September, which we, we shouldn't forget. The problem is that Hitler calls their bluff, allied, the, the Allies' bluff, uh, and from the British and French perspective, they had expected, with a degree of great power arrogance, that uh, their raised voices against Hitler, telling him to desist would be enough for him to stop, stop dead in his tracks. And when he didn't, there was no plan B. So they didn't really have enough uh, you know, military planning in place to actually do anything. There's no political will there anyway. That's another crucial problem. So what the, what the Western Allies do do in defence of Poland in 1939 is, is pathetic. It doesn't even get to the level of half-hearted, unfortunately. But again, I talk about that in the book. But that's because the political will isn't there. So they were expecting that they would, their warnings would be heeded, and when they're not... Uh, then they, they simply didn't have a plan B. But it's interesting that Britain and France fairly quickly declared war on Germany, but then didn't follow that up in mm. any serious sense in, in offering material aid to Poland or even, mm. you know, potentially attacking Germany from the other side. Was, yeah. So was in a way, was that, that declaration of war almost a bit hollow at that point? Uh, it is and it isn't. I think the declaration of war bit is actually fundamentally honourable. You know, the real dishonourable thing to have done uh, would have been what Hitler expected Britain and France to do, which is to walk away and say, this is not our fight, you know, you, you sort it out amongst yourselves. Um, that would have been the real, uh, you know, disgrace. Um, so Britain and France actually going to war, we should remind ourselves, they go to war, uh, they themselves have not been attacked. So Britain and France declare war on Germany on the 3rd of September. Britain and France have not been attacked themselves. They are going to war effectively in defence of Polish sovereignty, of Polish integrity, of Polish national independence, all of that stuff. And crucially, I think, for the idea of uh, small states standing up against tyranny. And that, I think, is something that we should remember. So that's a fundamentally quite an honourable thing to do. What's much less honourable, of course, is what follows, which is essentially not very much. 
there are a lot of warm words from the British and the French statesmen and, and journalists and so on in defence of Poland and saying how what a brave fight Poland is putting up against tyranny and uh, all that sort of thing. But actually, uh, there's very, very little in the way of material aid that's given to Poland. Uh, the French invade, invade in inverted commas, one should add, have an excursion, we might say, into the Saarland from, I think, about the 8th of September, uh, which lasts about five days. They get something like eight kilometres into uh, Western Germany, which is barely beyond the limits of the of the Siegfried Line defences, they again, I mean, half-hearted doesn't begin to describe it. They, they, uh, you know, entire divisions are stopped by a couple of machine gun shots. Uh, the Germans basically sort of back off because their tactic is obviously to avoid a confrontation because they don't want to necessarily provoke any sort of more robust action. So they essentially back off. Uh, and the French just do not have the political will to actually prosecute this our campaign with any sort of uh, vigour at all. And the same thing for the, the British in the air. I mean, the British could have uh, undertaken the, the bombing of German cities already at this point. It would have been morally questionable because that was that's something we associate with later in the war after a, you know some other rather odious precedents have been set. But, you know, they're bombing German military targets, particularly naval targets in the first days of the war. Um, they also drop leaflets over German cities, so they can. They've got the ability to get the planes into the air above places like Cologne and Hamburg and so on. But they're dropping leaflets. If they were serious about taking the war to Germany. Then perhaps those uh, leaflets should have been uh, rather more explosive. But then again, that's a political question. The political will is not there to actually prosecute the war with any sort of force whatsoever. So yes, I think there were possibilities for both the British and the French to actually do a bit more in defence of Poland. But unfortunately, you know, there was no will to do so. And coming on to Poland itself, how aware were they prior to September 39 of the impending threat and what steps did they take to try and defend themselves? Uh, this is one of those areas. I mean, we've, what we've covered so far, particularly about the diplomacy and so on, the British and the French aspect, is, is this is stuff that you'll find in a lot of history books. It's quite uh, common material. But to look at it from the other perspective, to a large extent, what I've done with the whole book is to try and tell the war from the perspective of Poland. Uh, which is the perspective that's missing when we talk about this. We can talk about it from the perspective of Westminster or we can talk about it through German sources, as you know, a couple of other historians have done, but nobody's really done it from Poland's perspective. And let's face it, they had the greatest losses by a long way in this campaign and they were the victims, uh, so we should actually include them in the narrative. That's why I'm trying to do that. Um, the Poles actually had a sort of pretty workable plan in 1939. They, the problem is that they are they're actually being attacked by three sides, on three sides by the Germans. Look at the map of Germany and Poland today. You can see that the border, which is along the r line of the uh, River Order, east of Berlin, is a straight line north-south. But it's very different from the, from the border before 1939. Uh, which included, you know, the enclave of East Prussia, which is separated off from Germany, which is a sort of big bulbous lump effectively pushing into the, the northern flank of, uh, of Poland. Uh, and you've got Pomerania in the northwest and Silesia in the southwest, both of whom are, you know, effectively creating this uh, problem for Poland that it's surrounded on three sides by Germany. You know, geostrategically, Poland is in a, 
a, a very difficult situation uh, in 1939. And it does actually have sort of fairly thought out plans, uh, military plans to deal with that threat. I mean, they know that the Germans are numerically and technologically superior, that they have better arms, they have better tanks, they have better aircraft. So the key thing that the, that the Poles wanted to do was to secure foreign allies. They know they can't fight this alone. So the key, the key task is to secure foreign allies, which they do, right? 20, uh, 25th of August, um, Anglo-Polish military agreement. Uh, and the French, of course, have already committed to coming in in aid, of, in aid of Poland as well, militarily. So they've got their two foreign allies. So their tactic is basically to effectively carry out sort of fighting withdrawal. They can't stand toe-to-toe against the Wehrmacht and the Luftwaffe, so they, they want to try and effect a fighting withdrawal, but the problem they face is, you know, fundamentally one that however well they fight or however fast they try and uh, pull away, they, they can never be faster than the German army, which has more, more, tr- more tanks, more trucks, more vehicles of every sort. So they're in a very difficult situation. Criticism that's often uh, levelled at Polish forces in '39 is that they, they positioned their troops very close to the border, to the western border and the, well, the German border, north, north, south and west. And that is true, but I think we have to understand why they did so. So they have this alliance with Britain and France that we talked about, and the key thing was that they didn't want any backsliding on behalf of London and Paris. So they put their troops, they had reserves as well, but you know, far behind the lines, but they put troops very close to the borders to effectively serve as a tripwire so that if the Germans did invade, the argument could never be raised by the British and the French that, well, you, you didn't fight. Why did you cede that, all of that territory without fighting? And on the back of that, London and Paris might have said, well, if you're not going to fight for yourself, then we're not going to fight for you either. So they essentially put their troops up against the border to act as a tripwire, to make sure that any German incursion would be met with force and that that would then trigger this Anglo-French uh, action in the West. So they have actually thought this out. It's not like these are sort of, you know, antediluvian uh, uh, peasants on horseback, which I think is off, you know, again, it's going back to uh, German propaganda image of the, of the wartime to portray all the Poles as being on horseback and sort of uh, attacking uh, German tanks with their sabres. So it's nonsense. You know, it's, it's actually a comparative, on a world scale, the Polish army is actually uh, a very well-equipped and, and, and numerous and, and well-supplied body of men. Uh, and they have a good plan in 1939. Problem is, their allies desert them, and they're facing the most advanced, uh, technologically, numerically, and uh, and uh, in terms of military doctrine, uh, military force on the planet in the Germans. That's the fundamental problem. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The Germans go in and they commit race war against Poland in 1939. That's the only answer that makes sense. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. 
you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The invasion of Poland is often characterized by the word blitzkrieg. How far do you think it's true that this was a real kind of high point of lightning war for the German army? It isn't, really. I think it's a very good question. This, this I, Again, I think I mentioned right at the beginning that the Polish campaign, September campaign, has sort of slipped through the cracks and doesn't get talked about. In the absence of knowledge, particularly in the Western narrative of the war, the gap where that knowledge should be is filled with mythology. The two great myths of this, the first one is that the Soviets didn't invade eastern Poland at all on the 17th of September. Of course they did, we know that, and I, did, I devote um, you know, a good section of the book to actually examining that cam- campaign in some detail to try and shoot down that myth. But the other great myth, I think, is the, is the German myth, which is, you know, that, as you said, that this is the sort of apogee, the zenith of, uh, of Blitzkrieg tactics. Now, it would be silly, really, to, to deny that entirely, um, because, you know, you just have to look at the forces on either side. I mean, the Poles did have tanks. Uh, the cover of the, um, the British edition of First to Fight has some lovely Polish tanks on it, just to make the point that the, uh, that the Poles did have tanks. Um, and not all of German soldiers were riding on vehicles and, and, uh, and riding in tanks. The Germans actually go into Poland with more cavalry than the Poles had cavalry in 1939. So this, this sort of uh, image of Germans in tanks versus Poles on, uh, on horseback is fundamentally mendacious. It's really not true. I mean, that said, it does happen in a couple of occasions that, um, you know, the uh, Polish cavalry attacked German infantry and are then sort of counterattacked by armour with predictable results. Um, but the the Polish cavalry doesn't fight generally in 1939 with cavalry charges. I mean, that was something that, uh, again, is a complete misconception. They fought dismounted. They had artillery in tow. They had uh, they used their horses effectively for mobility purposes. They had anti-tank rifles and so on. So they were actually remarkably, to a large extent, effective against the Germans. So this um, Blitzkrieg myth is something I think that the Germans created during the war as part of their own mythology and their own propaganda Um, would be foolish, as I say, to to deny it entirely because they are technologically, materially superior to the Poles. But just to explain Poland's defeat 
as solely the effect of the Blitzkrieg is to miss all the other factors that are involved, which are, as I said, geography for one thing. Little things like, you know, the fact that that summer was very dry in 1939. Poland's waterways, the Vistula, the Narev, the Bub, um, that part of the Polish plan was that they would be able to withdraw, in, you know, after this initial engagement triggers the Western Alliance, they would be able to w- withdraw beyond the line of the Narev and the Vistula and sort of hold those two great waterways as uh, to hold off the Germans. And certainly the Narev was was far too low in its levels to be used for, uh, for, uh, for that purpose at all. So even the weather is conspiring against Poland uh, in 1939. And there are other shortcomings. I mean, the Poles themselves, they have uh, this culture of secrecy in the military when neighbouring units at the front are not allowed to communicate directly with one another. So all communication has to go via the high command. And you can see how, how that would work out in a combat situation. Um, you know, the, the communication is pretty, pretty fractious anyway. You don't know what your neighbours are doing. They don't know what you're doing. Uh, it's like, you know, every, everyone is deaf and blind. So, the, you know, the Germans are hitting harder and faster and the Poles are effectively deaf, deaf and blind. So there's a, lot, there's a lot more going on, is my point. There's a lot more going on in contributing to that German victory, you know, overwhelming though it was, than just saying, oh, it was the Blitzkrieg. Because the Blitzkrieg is still itself, actually, in the process of developing. It's not yet been sort of fully rolled out, fully adopted. It's still, you know, some units are doing it very well. Guderian, who was the great sort of grandfather of of Blitzkrieg, um, was very effective at doing it and and sort of pushing his forces along uh, at every turn. But other units are being much more cautious and much more sedate. Uh, so it's certainly not yet being rolled out, and it's, I, I don't think we can describe it as the zenith of uh, Blitzkrieg tactics. You probably have to uh, apply that particular name to, I would say, probably the, the Barbarossa campaign against the Soviet Union. By that time, the Germans kind of know what they're doing. They're, they've practised this Blitzkrieg for a couple of times. They've got it down pat, and they're, they're doing it in the most effective manner possible in, in 41. It's not yet fully uh, in operation in 39. So you've referred a couple of times already to the Soviet invasion, which took place uh, two and a bit weeks after the German invasion. To what extent did that further hamper any chance of Polish resistance? Yeah, completely. Uh, The Red Army uh, is sent in on the 17th of September at dawn. And the key thing there is that Stalin is kind of, he's he's waiting, ideally, to see, see Poland collapse first. That suits his political purposes, because he has declared himself neutral in the war that's just begun, even though he has this, uh, you know, uh, arrangement with Hitler through the Nazi-Soviet Pact and the secret protocol, he declares himself neutral in the war, and he doesn't want to sort of go blundering into Poland as an aggressor and and rather, you know, jeopardise that neutrality. So he's sort of waiting for Poland to collapse, and there's an interesting correspondence between Berlin and Moscow, where Moscow is sort of saying, well, let us know when Warsaw is going to fall, so that we can time our, our invasion uh, appropriately. The Germans actually say, you know, on 15th, 16th, they say Warsaw is about to fall. And that's when they say the order of the invasion happens on the 17th. As it happens, Warsaw uh, holds out for another 10 days after that. So it, it doesn't look quite so rosy from Stalin's perspective. But he's very keen to sort of push the narrative that he's not an aggressor, that uh, the Red Army is coming in effectively to police a collapsing state. So that's the narrative they give. It is very obviously, if you look at the original files and the original orders from the, from the Red Army, it is very obviously a military invasion still. 
You know, this isn't a humanitarian operation at all. Uh, it is a military operation, and they do advance fairly quickly. They're facing fairly, well, very lightly armed Polish troops, mainly these sort of border troops, or some of the KOP, the COP, on those eastern borderlands. And the, and the COP doesn't have any air cover. They, they, have, they have nothing much in the way of artillery. Essentially, they're just policemen. Um, so you can imagine that the, that the uh, Red Army advances fairly quickly. That's not to say it's not resisted. It is bitterly resisted at many points. Um, but yeah, so Stalin is is invading, trying to dress it up as if it isn't an invasion, but it is. And um, effectively, that invasion does seal the deal as far as as far as Poland's military fate is concerned in 1939. The key tactic or uh, practice at that point was what was known as the Romanian bridgehead. Poland had a, a small border with Romania down in the southeast, uh, and Romania was a, a friendly state. Apart from Lithuania in the north, it was, it was Poland's only friendly state at that time. Uh, so the order was given by the high command that, you know, when, when it all looked rather difficult for Poland, the order was given that as many forces as, as possible were to withdraw to the southeast and try and get out through Romania. And this was how, incidentally, all those Polish pilots end up in Britain in 1940s because they escaped via Romania up to France and then and then subsequently to Britain. So many tens, even I think even a couple of hundred thousand men actually got out through Romania. But of course, if you've got the Red Army bearing down on your heels after the 17th of September, that's, that makes that withdrawal down to the southeast extremely difficult to do. So the... Red Army invasion does severely hamper any sort of any sort of last ditch resistance, particularly against the Germans, but you know uh, uh, also against the Soviets, and and it, and crucially, it disrupts that withdrawal of Polish forces. Now, um, something that comes out quite strongly in your book and also in the article that you you wrote for us is the level of atrocities yeah. that took place during the war, and on the German side, you point out the fact that it was far more prevalent in Poland than it was a year later yeah. against France. So what do you think explains that discrepancy? In a word, racism. All of the other aspects of the narrative or, or potential contributory factors to that barbarization of warfare, they're all there in 1939 and 1940. So you've got Blitzkrieg. Now, Blitzkrieg, you know, as we know, these sort of, um, you know, fast troops disrupting enemy defences, you know, pushing as far, as far and as fast as they can. And that, by definition, it leaves enemy troops sort of stranded behind the line and so on. If they keep fighting, it's very easy for you know, German troops in this case to say, well, look, they're partisans, they're, they're rebels, they're illegal combatants or whatever we want to call them and deal with them accordingly, which is usually fairly brutal. That technique is there in 1939, it's there in 1940. It's also suggested sometimes that there was an element of uh, sort of what they call partisan psychosis, that, that troops were fairly green, they're fairly inexperienced, and, you know, the first whiff of being shot at was one that would, would be sort of, you know, shocking and, and unnerving, and they would react accordingly and be, be sort of fairly trigger-happy. Again, if that was the case, that applies as much to 1940 as it does to 1939. It's also suggested sometimes that the use of pervitin, this sort of, you know, effectively methamphetamine speed, quite a few German troops in 1939 were on speed, as far as we can tell. And that certainly contributes to a, a lessening of inhibitions when it comes to warfare. And uh, of course, if you've been up for three days straight, you're not probably not thinking straight anyway. Uh, so that, again, has been suggested as a contributor to these atrocities. But again, it's there in 1939, it's there in 1940. So what's left as a contributory factor to explain this disparity, you know, in the French campaign, there's something like about 20 massacres throughout the whole period, civilians and, and POWs, and that's in, in a, something like a six-week period. 
In the Polish campaign, you've got, again, just less than six weeks, slightly shorter, you've got something like 600 massacres. So almost every, every other village is being torched uh, and you know, civilians, farmers, uh, POWs are being slaughtered left, right and centre. As I said, the only way to, dis- to explain that disparity, because everything else is the same, is actually racism. That the German army is indoctrinated with the Nazi racial theory. It goes into Poland in '39 with the mindset and with the orders that these people are inferior and essentially you can do what you like with them. And it's very interesting that uh, at the end of the campaign, uh, Hitler gave an order that there were to be no prosecutions for any actions against civilians or POWs carried out by, by Wehrmacht troops during the September campaign. So he effectively, admittedly, retrospectively, but he gave them carte blanche to do what they wanted to do. So I think that the simple explanation, it's a, l- a long way coming around to a simple explanation, is that the Germans go in and they, they commit race war against Poland in 1939. That's the only answer that makes sense. Now, of course, we know that um, Germany's ultimate racial enemy was the Jewish population, and over the course of the Second World War, I think it's about 3 million Polish Jews were killed. How far is this already being developed uh, during the initial war with Poland? Um, Probably less so than we might have thought. Inevitably, there are atrocities against Polish Jewish populations. There are a number of examples, you know, as as I was describing with with ordinary Polish villages, the same thing could happen in in villages and towns with predominantly Jewish populations. They'd be rounded rounded up, they'd be humiliated, they could be, uh, you know, men men folk could be taken out and shot. It does happen quite a lot. Um, Probably the most famous example, infamous example, is the massacre at Konskia, which was on the 12th of September in 1939, which was actually witnessed by Leni Riefenstahl, the filmmaker. She'd arrived in uh, at the front to, to act as a war correspondent, effectively. And there's a image of her visibly, you know, horrified by what she's seeing. And it, Konskia massacre was troops had rounded up the town's Jews um, and forced them to dig graves of soldiers that had been killed in combat just outside the town. Uh, and that had very quickly sort of uh, degenerated into something like a pogrom. And eventually the, the Wehrmacht soldiers present uh, fired blindly into a crowd. And I think something like 22 uh, people are killed in the, in the process. And Riefenstahl sees this, watches this develop. And there's a chilling picture of her absolutely horrified watching this uh, unfold. In the grand scheme of things in 1939, actions like that against Jews are actually in the minority. So although our narrative of the war tells us, yes, of course, the Germans are anti-Semitic, they, they you know, carry out the Holocaust later in the war, Jews are public enemy number one as far as Berlin is concerned, all of that absolutely correct. But uh, in the first instance going into Poland, actions against Jews are actually in the minority. It's, it's much more Polish villages that are being targeted. So a bit of both, but you know, to answer the question, not, not as much as we might think. And we shouldn't also forget that there were a lot of atrocities committed on the Soviet side mm. where the Soviets invaded as well. So... What was inspiring that? Because I suppose it wouldn't have been the racist element. Uh, not quite so much. It's uh, interesting, actually. It is, uh, it's a bit more complicated. The world view of the Soviet Union in 1939 going into Poland and of, and of the ordinary uh, Red Army soldier. The Red Army has, when it comes in, it invades eastern Poland on the 17th of September. The narrative that it gives itself was that the Red Army is going in to save native Belarusian and Ukrainian minorities in Poland who live in those, in those eastern areas from this sort of impending collapse of the Polish state. So 
there is a sort of concern for, you know, those Belarusian Ukrainian populations, and they are welcomed in many cases by those same populations. By definition, there is a sort of a sort of, uh, racist is the wrong word, but there's a prejudice against Poles. If you were Polish and you were in those areas, then almost by definition, you were a landowner, you were an aristocrat, you were a merchant, you were all those things actually that, that, that uh, the Soviet Union doesn't like anyway. You're probably on a list. Right, um, you're a, you're an oppressor of the Ukrainian or, or Belarusian uh, peasantry who are present. So there is this prejudice already against Poles. Uh, but what's more interesting, I think, is that, and it's it's kind of uh, rather neater sort of uh, description. Just as I said that, you know, the Germans are carrying out race war in the West. It's pretty clear that what the Red Army is doing and what its what its rear echelon troops certainly are doing is importing class war into uh, Eastern Poland. You know what they do, for example, with with captured. Um, Polish units is is very interesting because very often the Poles realise that they're going to you know the officers are going to be separated out uh, and the chances are they're they're going to be taken away for enhanced interrogation in inverted commas if not execution so everyone you know they take off all of their the signs of rank and medals and all the rest of it so that they just look like ordinary soldiers and then of course the Red Army gets wise to this and it starts checking soldiers' hands so it checks the hands of its of its prisoners and those that those whose hands are too white. There's a wonderful account that I read of this. The hands of prisoners, when they're too right, they're white. They're described as Bieloruchki, so white-handed. Uh, and that means that you've been either you've either been working in an office, or you're a bourgeois, or you're an officer of some sort. You know, you're not a, a horny-handed son of toil who's been called up for the for the Polish army. So you're obviously not a peasant, basically. Uh, and those were the people. They, so they used to separate them out on the basis of having soft white hands. Uh, and those were taken off for, for further interrogation. And very, you know, very often those formed the core of the Polish officer class that were, that were taken off and, and executed in the Katyn massacres of the following year. So. I think there's a very strong element. There is that also a degree of racial prejudice, as I say. I think we can stop stop, stop short maybe of calling it racism. There's certainly a racial prejudice against Poles. But more importantly, there is very much a, a class war ideology being brought in. How and why did the uh, Polish campaign come to an end? Uh, it comes to an end finally. The final surrender of remaining Polish troops in the field is on the 6th morning of the 6th of October. Um, that particular unit was a sort of a hodgepodge, rather thrown together unit called the uh, Polesia Independent Operational Group, uh, which fought a final battle for about three days straight at a place called Kotsk. Uh, which is uh, south of Warsaw, just e- east of the Vistula River, against the Germans, I should add. And the um, Polesia Independent Oper- Operational Group had basically been moving westward from Polesia, which was part of the area around uh, Brest-Litovsk, which is now in Belarus. Um, and they'd been moving westward away from the Soviet invasion and had sort of gathered together all these you know, elements of the COP, the, uh, the, the Border Defence Corps, and any sort of you know, shattered Polish units, units that were still forming up, random stray soldiers and everything else, and a lot of civilians and have been moving west in this sort of caravan and they were finally sort of surrendered uh, or finally surrounded rather by the Germans at Kotsk, uh, fought a three-day battle before realising that uh, they couldn't win, they couldn't get through and they couldn't win and they they, they, uh, gave up the fight. That was the last stand of Polish forces so all of the others, you know, they were fairly quickly uh, surrounded for example at at, uh, Warsaw. Warsaw held out amazingly for, for as long as it did under an absolute pounding from German artillery and uh, and uh, and planes finally surrendering on the uh, 28th, I think it was, of September. So, I mean, that was a remarkable holdout on their part. But there are other sort of pockets, like Modlin as well, the fortress to the north of Warsaw. But the last the last enclave is that of, around the Battle of Kotsk. That 
kind of brings the brings the narrative to an end. So those, those troops that have managed to escape to the southeast uh, initially are interned in Romania uh, and then manage to, uh, by hook or by crook, get, get themselves out and get to France, and some of them fight in France in 1940. They also then get to Britain and fight, in, the, in many cases, in the Battle of Britain, uh, and in many cases also are, you know, taken into, into British forces elsewhere. So that sort of provides, a, if you like, a long coda to this particular story. And the government in exile, of course, is formed in London ultimately from the from those uh, politicians and, and uh, high command members that got out in the same way. An interesting point just at the very end to make is that Poland doesn't formally surrender to the Germans. So there's no formal complete surrender of, of Polish forces, i.e., you know, some sort of peace conference. That never happens. Individual commanders of individual units, like General Kleberg at Kotsk, uh, surrender to to superior German power or or Soviet power indeed, um, but there's no formal general surrender. So effectively, the government in exile, the Polish government in exile in London, and then by extension the Polish underground, which forms pretty much straight away after the after the defeat in 1939. There's a continuity there, a continuity of command certainly, and a continuity of of resistance. From the 39 campaign of a regular army, a lot of those soldiers melt back into society. They hide their uniforms, they hide their guns in a barn somewhere, and uh, and they join the underground once it's once it's up and running and it's uh, the right time to do so. So there is continuity of resistance, which I think is an important point to make. But it's a, it's a fascinating campaign, and it's one that, um, as I said before, we, th- we in our Western narrative of World War Two. Uh, we've we've contrived to sort of completely overlook uh, for you know uh, essentially I think until until the present day. My task is to try and uh, try and change that. I know your book mainly focuses on the battle for Poland, but the fate of Poland over the next six years and indeed potentially until 1989 is, is a fairly grim one. Absolutely, I mean the 20th century was extremely cruel to Poland. As I said, you know we went to war for Poland in 39. We effectively betrayed Poland in 39 by not acting more vigorously in her defence. Uh, Poland is destroyed by the by the Germans and the Soviets in 39. It is subjected to a German-Soviet occupation, so it's split down the middle effectively. The Germans take the western half, the Soviets take the eastern half, and effectively life in the two halves is is not dissimilar there both populations are you know sifted and sorted and deported to various places uh, we don't know how many poles are deported to siberia by the soviets in 1940 uh, it could be as many as a million and the same thing the germans in the west are either deporting people out of the areas that they directly annex or they're deporting them into germany as forced labor so you know that's all before the german attack on the soviet union in 41 at which point you know, Poland is completely occupied by the Germans. That's when the Holocaust properly gets going, really, in 41. Uh, it gets going. It takes place on Polish soil. That's where, that's where half of the Holocaust victims already are, because they're Polish Jews. So the Germans use that as their location, their racial laboratory for the, uh, for the Holocaust and for this great sifting of populations, which is a hideous experience for all concerned. And then, of course, the end of the war comes. Poland tries to rise up against the Germans, Warsaw Rising, in course 1944 that's crushed brutally quarter of a million people killed in the process it was hideous and at the end of all that their reward at the end of all that is is to end up in the communist sphere and uh, uh, have communism imposed upon them which is only only uh, removed in 1989 as we know so it's a it's an absolutely hideous narrative and you can understand why some polls say that you know world war ii for them finished in 89 because in a in a in a very real sense it did 
And just just finally, you've obviously spent quite a lot of time in Poland in writing the book and, and subsequently. How much does this story still affect people there and, and how do they view Britain's role on the distance of 80 years? Mm. Um, the war generally touches absolutely every Polish family. You don't find people unaffected. You know, the death toll uh, for Poles during the World War II is, is, is upwards of five million. It's like, it's like uh, one in five of the population. It's astonishing. So, um, you know, there, there's scarcely a family un, unaffected by World War II generally. Many of those families will have some sort of narrative of, you know, of involvement in 1939 or in 1944 or whatever it is. Curiously, actually, because of the, the dynamics that I, did, that I described, a lot of the diaspora Poles in Britain who came to Britain either during the war or after the war um, were part of that 39 narrative. So they, they had that tradition, you know, as well. So, you know, if you have, uh, if you have elderly uh, Polish neighbours, it might be worth asking them what, the, what their story is. It, chances are it might be something to do with 39. Um, so it certainly affects everyone. It's very present as well. It's something that's very often talked about, you know, films, documentaries. It, it's a bit like Britain and, you know, our D-Day mythology or our Battle of Britain mythology. It's like that, but from Polish perspective, you know, more intense and more and more bloody and more brutal, and it doesn't have happy endings either. Um, so it's certainly it's certainly very prevalent in uh, in Poland. Um, the way the British um, are viewed, or British and the French, I think there is still, to some extent, a sort of lingering suspicion perhaps you could say i mean you know the poles are very um very uh, positively predisposed towards britain that's part of the reason that we have so many poles in this country and and they've been very successful in making their lives here but i think there is still an element where there's a there's a slight distrust and it's very interesting that you know as soon as you know particularly eu membership but most particularly nato membership was raised for poland um those were things that they they absolutely grabbed onto they, they're still mindful of having uh, decent international connections and international alliances that uh, should stand the test if if the test should come so that's that's very interesting and you know very telling i think in the polish case that uh, they're very keen to have those connections um but i think there's it's a curious maybe a slightly sort of schizophrenic attitude towards the british because um they certainly haven't forgotten 1939 and british inaction uh, they certainly haven't forgotten the, you know, the, the fact that uh, Polish troops were not permitted to march in London in 1945 either. There's, there are a couple of salient points where uh, Britain uh, failed to live up to the standards that we might have expected. Uh, and those certainly haven't been forgotten in Poland. But at the same time, there's a great affection for the country. So as I said, it's, it's a slightly schizophrenic attitude. That was Roger Morehouse. First to fight, the Polish War, 1939 is published today, the 5th of September, by Bodley Head. And his piece on the war for Poland appears in the October edition of BBC History magazine, which is also published today, with the Crusades on the front cover. Look out for it in all good retailers now. And Roger will be discussing his new book at our History Weekend events in Winchester and Chester this autumn. You can find out more details and purchase tickets at historyextra.com forward slash events. And that's all for today. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Ewart and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Monday when Dan Jones and Helen Castor will be discussing the Crusades. Mm-hmm.